ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. It's the last service of its kind in Australia. And while most posties are negotiating busy traffic, yappy dogs and never-ending Amazon deliveries, the workday for the riverboat postman on the Hawkesbury River in New South Wales plays out against a totally different backdrop. And it's not just booze and guitars this unique postie delivers to the hundreds of people living in the river community. It's entertainment. There's always some scandal going along. And look, let's just face it, everyone loves a bit of scandal as long as they're not a part of it. There's always something going on in the river. There is never a dull moment on the Hawkesbury. The funny thing is people say on the boat, oh, you must get really bored up river. I have never been bored up river here, ever. I'm Sinead Mangan and this is Australia Wide, coming to you from Wajuk Country, Perth. The situation in Gaza may seem worlds away from central Australia, but in the early hours of the morning, protesters blocked access to the highly secretive Pine Gap military facility located outside of Alice Springs. Now, it's the second protest outside the joint Australia-US defence facility in just over a month. Protesters say their aim was to prevent the 800 workers from doing their work at the site and are calling for it to be closed for good. Pine Gap was established during the Cold War as a US satellite surveillance base on Australian soil. And the protesters say they fear the facility is collecting intelligence the US National Security Agency is providing to the Israel Defence Forces to inform its actions in the Israel-Gaza war. Our reporter Alex Barwick was out there in the early hours of morning. Alex, tell us about Pine Gap. What is it and why is it there? Pine Gap is uh, its called a joint defence facility. It's uh, an operation that is essentially co-run between the United States government and the Australian government. And it's been just to the south of Alice Springs, about 18 to 20 kilometres south. It's been there for decades. Uh, the original agreement was signed all the way back in 1966. And over the decades, the role that it's played has changed. Initially, it was set up for the Cold War, um, but now... And and this is certainly what we heard from the protesters today. Uh, they claim that Pine Gap and the inte- intelligence that's gathered there is being used in wars like the one we're seeing between Israel uh, and Hamas. Describe the scene that you saw there earlier this morning. How many people were there? It was very early. You're talking about like just before five in the morning, I believe. I understand that they actually set up at around 4.30 this morning. I didn't get out there until about 6 o'clock. I think, you know, they sort of sent out, um, yeah, I guess, a heads up to, to the media that it was happening. So I got out there around 6 and essentially um, the Stuart Highway, which runs right through the middle of Australia, you know, all the way from up um, in Darwin down to Adelaide, well, basically you go south through Alice Springs on the Stuart Highway and then there's just this single road that turns off. Um, and that takes you, it's a one-way road into Pine Gap and it was just a couple of hundred metres down that road to Pine Gap that there were um, witches' hats, uh, a large sign saying uh, close Pine Gap, free Palestine and then in the middle of the road uh, were two people who had locked their arms inside a concrete-filled barrel right in the middle of the road 
Um, probably about 20 or so protesters. And when I arrived, there were already police, both Northern Territory Police and the Australian Federal Police, because they're involved in the security of Pine Gap. Would you describe it as a peaceful protest? Look, it was actually very calm. Uh, I also went out to cover the protest that happened about a month ago at exactly the same location. This one was a little bit bigger, but on both occasions, they were both reasonably calm. Uh, this one lasted for a longer period of time. It seemed harder for um, the fireys to to cut off um, that barrel filled with concrete. And so I think that road was a cl- was closed all the way through until uh, about 1130 this morning, uh, which we understand did disrupt a, a lot of workers from getting into Pine Gap and, and leaving because it's a 24-hour facility, so there are always uh, workers coming and going. Let's hear a bit of what the protesters had to say to you, Alex. Hey, my name's um, Tommy Walker, and I'm a social worker in Alice Springs. Um, I have an obligation as a social worker to take a stand against what's happening over in Israel right now um, and in Gaza. This morning we have uh, once again blocked access to uh, the Pine Gap Joint Facility out here southwest of Alice Springs and we've been preventing uh, work, workers from entering, entering and preventing workers uh, from conducting um, the work that goes on inside Pine Gap. And how have you done that? Uh, so we've got a, uh, a big barrel f- uh, full of concrete and we've got uh, two people with their arms locked inside the barrel uh, and we've also got a whole lot of um, road safety gear, uh, several road closed signs, witches hats, uh, banners and a general and general blockade with about uh, 25 to 30 people. That's Declan Farber who was at the protest today. Like you said, Alex, this is the second protest out at Pine Gap um, and, and you're describing a place that is quite curious that's outside of Alice Springs. How generally do locals feel about Pine Gap being out there aside from these protesters? I think there's a really mixed reaction. You know, we don't have any official number on um, the level of staff out there, even when you ask the authorities that they won't tell you. But there's a broad understanding that there's about 800 people that work there, um, half Australian, half American. And there's a population of 25,000 here in Alice Springs. So that makes for a pretty large employer. So I think there are a lot of people uh, that appreciate that that work is there. A lot of people uh, are quite happy that Pine Gap exists Others clearly are very concerned. That's a local group of people that were out there known as Mbantua for Palestine. And I also think there's probably a third group and that are people who are reasonably apathetic to it. Alex, this is the second protest that's happened outside of Pine Gap. Do you expect further protests? It's really hard to know. The facility Pine Gap itself is very much shrouded in secrecy and so it seems is this group. They were very careful normally with the protest you know, there's a heads up to media and other people across the community um, in the days leading up. Absolutely nothing here, so we'll have to wait and see. Alex Barwick and Alice Springs, thanks for chatting to Australia Wide. Thanks, Sinead. You're listening to ABC Australia Wide. As we head into fire season, one bushfire survivor wants people to be aware that not every fire will qualify for what's called emergency government assistance. Louise Lodge lost her home in the Hopetown fire on WA's south coast last February. Luckily, she was insured, but she says trying to find or build a home in a housing and construction crisis is challenging. Brianna Fiore has this story. The mere smell of smoke sent shivers down Louise Lodge's spine, a ghastly reminder of the day her home was reduced to a smouldering pile of ashes. Uh, on the day of the fire, it was, it was a very hot day 
very windy, hot day, and there were thunderstorms that came up in the afternoon. And I was in town at the beach, uh, swimming, and um, there was this loud thunderclap and a lightning strike. And not long after that, my friend rang me and she said, there's a fire out at Seaview Way. Um, I think you better get home. I could see it from the road out there. I was sort of stood on the road. And I knew that my house was burning. Although I couldn't see it because there was too much smoke and, and, and the bush was in the way. But um, I just resigned myself to the fact that, well, I'm going to lose it. I didn't break down. I didn't feel upset. I just detached myself from it. Um, it was a strange sort of feeling, but I resigned myself. And um, I had moments when I came back here and I found a prized possession all burnt up and, you know, kept thinking of the things that I'd lost. This month, Louise Lodge will move into her new home. She says it's been difficult to find a place to live during a housing and construction crisis. Her only option was a modular build because of a lack of tradies in rural areas. At one point, the 74-year-old was living in a caravan she thought was going to topple over in the wind. But I've had stays at different places in between. I've probably stayed at about seven different places altogether over that period of time, just living out of a suitcase, moving. Is that unsettling? Yeah, it is. I don't want to do it again. (laughs) Um, Once I get into here, I think that's it. I'm not going to move anywhere. The fire burnt an area twice the size of the Maldives, but a spokesperson for Emergency Services Minister Stephen Dawson confirmed it didn't qualify for any state or federal funding. There needs to be a state expenditure which exceeds 240000 and the need for a coordinated multi-agency response for victims to get any help. This left Louise Lodge feeling isolated and forgotten. We weren't declared a disaster area because not enough people lost property or lost houses. So we didn't get any um, emergency funding in, as individuals. We had to raise our own money and I had some good friends that set up a GoFundMe page on Facebook and they raised quite a bit of money that way. Despite all the challenges, the Hopeton resident has hope for the future. I consider myself lucky, um, mainly because I had the insurance and because um, I had really, really good community support. And even now, people are still asking, oh, do you want any help? How are you going? And everyone is interested. They want to know um, what's been happening and have you got your house? So I think I've been lucky. That was reporter Brianna Fiore with bushfire survivor Louise Lodge. ABC Australia Wide. Now we're looking at another protest because more than 100 people have been charged following a 30-hour blockade at the world's largest coal port. Protesters from right across Australia took action in Newcastle over what they say is a failure of government to act on climate change. Rami Stevens filed the story. This crowd is cheering on Queensland coal miner Grant Howard. He's one of hundreds from across Australia lining Horseshoe Beach in Newcastle protesting fossil fuels. Thanks for coming today. I guess we have some things in common and that is that is that we want an end to any new fossil fuel projects. 
The beach is at the edge of the shipping channel, which leads into the port of Newcastle. It links to the historic coal mines of the Hunter Valley and is where more than 150 million tonnes of coal is exported from each year. The fossil fuel industry has been a big part of Grant Howard's life. I've been working in the coal industry now for 43 years. I'm still employed in the industry, working whether it be sort of supervising guys or facilitating training for new guys that are entering the industry. For most of his career, he knew burning fossil fuels contributed to climate change, but he always thought the federal government would take care of things. Five years ago, he saw a news report saying the level of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere was approaching 420 parts per million. As a coal miner, I was monitoring carbon dioxide all the time, every day at work. I knew what it was when I started, which was 300 parts per million. My instruments, of course, only measure not to the same level of accuracy. But when someone else told me the change, I felt betrayed. I felt let down. I was just so angry. Now the 60-year-old is campaigning for a quicker transition to renewable energy. I wouldn't be here today if I didn't think there was a future. What that future holds, I'm a bit afraid of. Look, I've got a son, I've got a daughter, and I wonder what the challenges are that will be for those people and, and generations after that. Protesters used kayaks and floats to block the port of Newcastle over the weekend. The 30-hour blockade saw shipping movements grind to a halt. 17-year-old Newcastle student Alex Goodsir took to the water. She's getting tired of people telling her she's too young to engage in political issues. Because we're so young, we feel like the climate crisis is a lot more immediate because we feel like it's pressing down on us and it'll affect our whole future, whereas we feel older politicians aren't that concerned because... It's not this big looming thing in the future for them. They might not even experience it. Valerie Thompson's red kayak features a placard that says Northern Rivers Climate Defence. She works in Lismore and her offices were inundated during last year's floods. We know for a fact that the fossil fuel companies were not on the ground to help us when the climate crisis actually hits. And so we are calling on the government to immediately stop their senseless profiteering at the expense of our climate and our future. 104 people were charged after staying out on the water following the protest deadline of four o'clock yesterday afternoon. New South Wales Premier Chris Minns says he doesn't support the action taken by climate protesters. If you break the law in New South Wales, even if it's protest, you'll be arrested. So this isn't a perfect situation. I prefer people didn't protest at the coal port. It's a lawful trade. It's important for New South Wales. Federal member for the Hunter, Dan Rippercoli, also condemned the protesters. I think it's a bit chaotic what they're doing down there. At least half of the world is powered by our coal. So to stage a protest like they've done, like I think is a bit ridiculous personally. Uh, Everybody has the right to protest and we don't want to take that away from anyone, but they need to think about the hardworking miners and the miners' families. In a statement, the Chief Executive of the State's Minerals Council, Stephen Galilee, said coal exports are worth more than $70 billion nationally and create 25,000 jobs in New South Wales. Grant Howard knows all too well how coal has supported jobs and the economy, but he says the time for change is now. I'm hopeful that as a country, at community, state by state, we'll get there, that we'll we'll get on board with this. Is it fast enough for me? No, but Australia gets there eventually. That's Queensland coal miner Grant Howard, ending that story from Rami Stevens. As Australia Post gears up for the usual busy Christmas and holiday period next month, another more unique service is also getting ready. The Riverboat Postman delivers mail to hundreds of isolated residents along the Hawkesbury River in New South Wales. 
It's the last service of its kind in Australia, but it isn't showing signs of slowing down any time soon. Kira Proust went out with the riverboat postman and filed this story. Winding your way along the famous Hawkesbury River, the busyness of Sydney seems a million miles away. The bushland along the water's edge is dense and most of the people living here don't have any road access. But it's the untapped beauty that the locals love. It's a great place to live. People definitely make it. And also it's just the the natural beauty of the place. The majority of the land around here is either National Park or Nature Reserve. It is like a small country town of 1,200 people. So 600 or so on the water, 600 or so on Brooklyn. Where we are now in, in Brooklyn Channel, this is sort of the interface for the residents on the river to come over to Brooklyn. So, you know, you've got the local pub in Brooklyn where you find a lot of the locals on the water would go. You've also got the bowling club on Danga Island, which people go to. You've also got the workers' club up at Mooney Mooney. People go to that as well. So there's lots of places to socialise. Justin Panagi runs the local postal delivery service alongside his brother and wife. It's the last service of its kind in Australia, delivering mail to locals up and down the river every weekday all year round. Deliver anything from a postcard to a box of wine and everything in between, up to about 450 articles of mail each day, which is about normal. Locals say the postal service is the real lifeblood of the river, with many of them often hitching a free ride on the boat. My name's Margie Waite. We rely very heavily on the mail service and it's very very much changing because it's all more or less going to parcels now. There's not a lot of um, letters kind of mail. But um, the riverboat postman has a slight tax on, on they, they say, on their, if you order a dozen bottles of wine, then, then they take one bottle for tax, tax purposes. <laughs> the original riverboat postman started operating back in 1910. It was taken over by the Panagis in 2012 after the previous business owners went into liquidation. It now doubles as a tourist attraction, taking visitors out on the water during the daily mail run. Now, a lot of these places up here originally were farms. Danga Island resident Beth Rayner is one of the staff that helps keep the customers happy during the trip. So we collect the mail in Brooklyn and we deliver it to a couple of settlements up the river. And it's great. It means that we have the same postal service as everywhere else. We still get our deliveries. It does take a couple of days longer, but nothing crazy for, you know, living so far out of the way. And having water access only is, and still being able to get mail is great. So when there's no locals, we have to run it up to their local post boxes. And it's usually not too far, just up the wharf. Booze and guitars seem to be the most popular parcel items and the local gossip also helps keep people entertained. There's always some scandal going along. And look, let's just face it, everyone loves a bit of scandal as long as they're not a part of it. There's always something going on in the river. There is never a dull moment on the Hawkesbury. The funny thing is people say on the boat, oh, you must get really bored up river. I have never been bored up river here, ever. It's very lively and very interactive. A lot lot of businesses on the river, very vibrant. I think it's an untapped gold mine and that's how we want it to stay. While the riverboat postman continues to service those along the Hawkesbury River, Australia Post and other contractors across the country are now gearing up for a busy Christmas period ahead. Helen Goodyear from Australia Post's New South Wales and Queensland division says they're expecting a busier delivery season than last year. We're looking uh, in really good shape. You know, this is something that we plan for. It's like our grand final. So we've been getting plenty of match fitness and ready to, uh, you know, hopefully uh, deliver on a better peak than last year. Uh, Last year we delivered 52 million parcels. We're expecting another big peak season this year. 
Helen Goodyear from Australia Post, ending that story from Kira Proust. You're listening to Australia Wide with me, Sinead Mangan. It can be challenging growing up with a disability in rural Australia, but a young man from a cattle property near Charters Towers in North Queensland has found success in the world of competitive athletics and he's made some friends along the way. Lucy Cooper has put this story together. Sam Lafer loves to run and growing up on a remote cattle property, he's had plenty of space to practice. I've always thrown him outside and luckily, you know, you can just go outside, kick a ball for hours. He loves the dogs, so he runs around with the dogs. And although he had three older siblings, Sam's mum, Teresa, did worry about how he would engage with the outside world, a challenge for most teenagers with Down syndrome. I was driving along and I just thought to myself, I really need to find Sam some peers. You know, he's getting older and everyone needs to be in contact or connected to somebody who has things in common. The answer was to link Sam's passion for running with competitive athletics, a move that took him from the Queensland bush to the international stage. Sam doesn't say no, like he's a real, he's not going to give up. You know, that's a real achievement. For, for, you know, a little farm boy from Charters Towers to, um, you know, meddle over there in France. Living on a rural cattle property gave Sam some opportunities city kids miss out on. He used to, uh, when we ran the dogs, he'd always hop out at the grid and run home <laughs> with the dogs. <laughs> and despite living in rural North Queensland... Shoulder press, let's go, nice and quick. One. Finding a running coach for Sam was surprisingly easy. Over the hurdle, good lad, push high. For 34 years, Leslie Muller has been a coach working in rural Queensland with extraordinary success rates, having seen many of her athletes represent Australia overseas. Nine, ten, good lad. But she'd good never lad. taken on someone like Sam before. I see it as a challenge. At times it can be a little frustrating when I don't understand him, but he's a pretty clever little boy. He will write in the sand to tell me what he's trying to say. Okay, you've got to push with feet. The kids that come from the farm, like Sam, who runs around barefoot, and some of my other athletes, you don't have to condition them as much. But the city kids, yeah, you do. In just 12 months, Sam went from schoolboy to an Australian record holder, and then a competitor at an international competition, taking part in the Virtus Games in France five months ago. It was absolutely amazing. I was terrified because (laughs) I've never really travelled much before. But even the build-up to going, the whole community got behind Sam. Sam competed in the 100 and 200 metres sprint, shot put and long jump, and he walked away proudly with a bronze medal. You got this in France? (laughs) Was there lots of people? Was mum screaming? (laughs) Me, if in, doesn't. You and Ethan were dancing. You're supposed to be running. (laughs) 15,000 kilometres away, Sam's coach watched from home in Charters Towers via live stream. I was getting up four o'clock in the morning to do it or staying up late at night because of the time changes. I was very pleased for Sam and it made me realise this is a competitor. The Virtus Games offers athletes with an intellectual impairment the opportunity to compete at an elite level and in some events even qualify for the Paralympics. So Virtus has a global games every four years and it's 11 sports. They were in France and Australia took 114 athletes 
to Vichy in France to compete in the Global Games in June this year, and Sam was one of those athletes. Robin Smith is the CEO of Sports Inclusion Australia and wants to spread the word that there are sporting opportunities for people with disabilities. And pull up. Sam is a production of some of the work that's been done before and we hope more athletes like Sam are able to try sport, love sport, train and if they're any good, go to, to France or to the global games like Sam has done. Running isn't Sam's only passion. His family have also been working with Sam to become independent and financially secure. We're also thinking of you know, something, he, a little business he can start up with himself, whether it's to do with dogs, a dog resort, looking after our pets while people are away on holidays. And then me go move home. You're moving home? What? <laughs> a beautiful, friendly character. What's our future aspirations? Do you want to break the world record? Yes, break yeah. the world record. Break the world record? <laughs> Sam Leifer, schoolboy and Australian record holder, ending that story there from Lucy Cooper. And that is Australia Wide for this Monday. I hope you're having a lovely evening. Cheerio. ABC Listen.